Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On this episode, we offer an encore presentation of a discussion about philosophical therapy. With so many people at the psychic breaking point, with the stress of politics and a pandemic, we thought it would be the ideal time to replay an episode focusing on philosophy and mental health. Here, therefore, is my conversation with Lou Marinoff from October 2011, when we ask why Plato, not Prozac. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Why. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. Today, we're talking about the philosophical counseling movement. We all know people who use prescription drugs for psychological disorders. Illnesses ranging from anxiety to depression to schizophrenia can be treated with pills. We also know people who use recreational drugs. Some get people high, others help them relax, and still others may bring different kinds of consciousness. All of these drugs, whether legal or not, work by altering some aspect of a person's brain chemistry by physically changing what we are. What we are, however, may be different than who we are. While today's neuroscientists focus largely on the brain, historically, philosophers think about the mind, the consciousness that gives us identity, perspective, personality. The brain is made of matter, stuff. The mind is abstract and amorphous. The brain is an object. The mind is a subject. The brain is an it. The mind is an I. Philosophers like to ask about the relationship between the two. Does the brain create the mind, or are they somehow parallel? Are we physical creatures who are bound by material desires and needs, or are we minds trapped in bodies, a consciousness that motivates a machine the way a remote control operates a toy car? These questions are all the legacy of the 17th century philosopher René Descartes, and we are all, for the most part, Cartesian mind-bodily dualists. This means that we all believe in some sense that both the mind and the body are real, for example— we all understand when someone complains that her date only wanted her for her body, while she wanted to be desired for who she really is. We also know which option, sexual desire or intimate connection, is morally superior. Human beings seem bound by some magging belief that we are more than just our physicality. Religious commitment to the soul is only one small aspect of this. Together, the Beatles were more than just John, Paul, George, and Ringo, and we as individuals are all more than just our arms, lungs, and synapses. The whole is often greater than the sum of its parts, yet right now, in today's world, we are all in the middle of a tremendous battle, the consequences of which are immeasurable. More and more, people are seen simply as bodies and not as minds, personalities, or characters. As a result, how we treat our problems, describe our desires, and negotiate our politics are changing rapidly. Advertisers try to inspire the release of endorphins uh, for pleasure, and products are manufactured for unreflective physiological response. McDonald's cheeseburgers are created by chemists, not by cooks. None of this is more evident than in psychiatry, where new drugs continually appear to address disorders we didn't know we had. This is often good and necessary, but it is not always so. Physiologically, we can ask how many cases of ADHD would be resolved if children weren't having apple juice and carbohydrates for breakfast, drinking soda at lunch, and being expected to sit at their desk the rest of the time. Intellectually, we can ask, as my guest today does, whether much of this would be mitigated by making school less about crowd control and testing and more about being interesting and physically challenging. What does all this say about us? As many people have wondered when they first take their medication, if these pills alter our brains, do they also alter who we are? Do they help us be our best, most authentic selves by simply fine-tuning the machine? Or do they hide our true selves because our depression is a product of our mind, of who we are at the moment? Now, I don't want to be Tom Cruise here. I'm not criticizing psychiatry, and I'm certainly not belittling those who need drugs to function better in the world. Many of the people I love rely on them every day. I'm simply asking, who is it that I love? The brain that the drugs interact with or the mind that I relate to? I don't have an answer to this yet, but I do know that some of who they are is philosophical, how they choose to see the world, and how their philosophical dispositions interact with my own. If philosophy can play a counseling role in our society, as our guest today suggests, it can only do so by changing someone's way of looking at things, and if it can do that successfully, it is working on our mind rather than our brain. 
But neuroscientists may say all this means is the development of new physical pathways and the cultivation of new synaptic connections. Are we saying the same thing? Is the mind just the brain understood through a different lens? Whatever we answer here, we should all be aware that this question is central to the age we live in. It helps form the world we create. So let's now turn to the task of exploring the mind of our guest. Lou Marinoff is professor at the City College of New York and founding president of the American Philosophical Practitioners Association. He's authored two international bestsellers, Plato Not Prozac and Therapy for the Sane. Lou, welcome to Why. Hi, Jack. Thank you very much. So, Lou, just to get us started, we're not allowed to claim that philosophical practitioners are therapy. What you're doing is not therapy. This is required by law. Why is this, and how do you feel about it? Uh, well, Jack, uh, thank you for beginning with a very interesting philosophical question. How I feel about it, however, is more of a psychological one, so let's put that on one side, okay? By the way, you did such a great job introducing this show. I don't even think you need me. You could just carry <laughs> on. Uh, so, so I just wanted to say, you know, this industry that you described that diagnoses and drugs and, and looks at brains and behavior and so forth and neglects mind and the inner resources of the human being is still called somewhat paradoxically the mental health industry. Mental health, yes? So they're still talking about mental health, even though the thing that they're treating is really the brain. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. What... Does, does, has the word mental changed its meaning completely? Does it just refer to the physical brain structures? Well, well, not at all. I mean, there are so many, as you know, so many positions one could take on this issue. The mind-brain problem, the mind-body problem admits of various kinds of solutions, and we're not going to go into the academic you know, possibilities right here and now. It's just that if we knew as much about the brain as neuroscience looks like one day it might know, then the name of the field would become surely cerebral health. And if the well-being of, of the human as a complete entity could, in fact, be determined strictly by brain chemistry, then they wouldn't have to talk about this mental stuff at all, right? And that's the hope. That was the hope of Freud, and that's the hope of many people who today work in this area. I just want to tell you, as it happens, I came back last, last month from Germany where I was invited to give, believe it or not, a keynote lecture at a conference of molecular psychiatrists. I mean, these are the guys who are really reaching in to tweak, you know, the neurochemical transmitters and so forth. And yet they wanted to hear from a philosopher. And because they're honest scientists and, and, and great researchers and open, they understood also there's a lot about the human being that is still mental, still noetic, to use the word that pertains to mind, and therefore still in need of some philosophical input. Is there... Um is there hostility between the neuroscientists and the philosophers, or more specifically, since we're asking about the therapy aspect, is there hostility between philosophical practitioners and professional psychiatrists, psychologists, those forms of therapists? Uh, well, it depends who you ask, and, and I will be completely candid with you and say that uh, the American media, which is very good at fomenting controversy or controversy, if you prefer, uh, has from time to time uh, elicited some, you know, fairly controversial or, or, or somewhat aggressive sound bites from people who would like to oppose what we do but haven't even read our literature who don't necessarily understand what we're claiming we do and what we're claiming we don't do. So it's very easy to stir up, you know, to get half-baked pronouncements. One of the most famous was from a former president of the American Psychiatric Association who said, Philosophers who you know who who deal who help people resolve moral dilemmas are practicing medicine without a license. I mean that that is so absurd on its face. I can't even believe he said it. But let me let me just say this to you: We have tremendous support now, ten years later, from many people in the mental health industry who realize that we are not seeking to substitute you know, what they do for what we do, but we are providing a viable alternative, which in certain cases is indeed the appropriate one. Okay, so. What is it that you do that is either positive or negative, depending on who we ask, and why doesn't it constitute the definition of therapy? Yeah, and, and we'll come back to this question about therapy, I promise. Just in reference to your last question, let me also add one thing, and that is I think that the perception more on the part of physicians and psychiatrists is welcoming to us. I think that philosophy and medicine have a very natural alliance, and we just, uh, the association uh, that you, you kindly mentioned, APA, has just, for example, completed a three-year pilot project in Sweden 
with uh, the Spinalis Foundation. They have integrated philosophical counseling into a menu of services in their clinic, which is state-of-the-art medicine, and their populations are newly spinal injured patients and also newly diagnosed MS patients. And they have discovered that such people need to reorient themselves, need to reinvent themselves in light of their medical conditions, but that philosophy can be, for some of them, a great help in doing so. All right, I, I want to call our listeners' attention to something that you said because it's so astonishing from the American point of view. Here's what you said. You said, here are people who have experienced tremendous trauma, like uh, some sort of physical trauma, and the Swedish establishment or, or some people in Sweden have suggested after this tremendous accident, what these people need is philosophers. Now, how do you make sense of that? How, how do you start off by saying, look, you're, you, you need to, to, to have a better sense of your place in the world. We're not going to necessarily give you just to a doctor or to a doctor, not to a psychiatrist or just to a psychiatrist. We want you to sit down and talk to a philosopher. What does that mean? How do you make sense of that? Well, these are very far-seeing Swedish physicians. These are probably not, you know, run-of-the-mill or average uh, uh, physicians in that they have spent a lot of time investigating practical philosophy. But think about it for a second, Jack. They are providing state-of-the-art medical care, and, and what they're able to do is remarkable. They can stabilize people who have shattered their spines, who have permanent and irreversible spinal injuries such that they're going to be wheelchair-bound, you know, for the rest of their foreseeable lives, or indeed people who are newly diagnosed with MS, whose prognosis is less certain, they may deteriorate more slowly or more rapidly, that is unknown. But in either case, after they have received the medical care that stabilizes them and that basically lets them know what is their condition, you know, and how they're going to manage themselves biologically, there's still something missing from the equation. Their identity has changed in some way. And what the doctors realized is these people are not mentally ill. These people are not necessarily psychologically disturbed. They're not necessarily suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder or any of the catalog of terms, you know, from the DSM. What they need to do is make sense of their lives find some meaning and purpose, and rediscover ways to be contributive. And there, philosophy can be of help. You called this process at one point, uh, and it's the title of one of your books, Therapy for the Sane. Now, what do you do? Do you give them a, a, a book of Aristotle and say, here, write a report, and I'll get back to you? How do you bring in philosophy and philosophers into this counsel, counseling relationship, this therapeutic relationship? Well, it can be as simple as a reading, although we're not acting completely as professors in the sense that, you know, we give them homework to do. Uh, we're more focused on their problems, the difference between teaching philosophy in the classroom and counseling individuals philosophically can be viewed in this way, that in the classroom, the professor more or less sets the agenda and says, okay, here's the subject, you know, here's the reading, and this is what we're going to discuss. When the client walks into a philosopher's office for a session, however, it's the client who's setting the agenda. And what we're helping that person do is really to explore their own mindscape and their own issues, but from a philosophical perspective. It turns out that Aristotle can be very helpful in certain cases, and if you want, we can, we can discuss one. And then sometimes it happens that someone says, gee, this insight from Aristotle was so helpful, I'd like to read more. And in that case, we do exactly this. We, we, we call it bibliotherapy. Give them a reading, and then we can discuss it even further. All right, so let's, let's take a practical example. Let's say I come to you and I say, look, I have this radio show on Prairie Public and, and it's gotten a lot of attention around the world. We, you know, I'm feeling good about it, but Rush Limbo still gets more attention than me. Rush Limbo still makes a lot more money than me. Rush Limbo is, is, is a name that everyone knows. I can't get past this. Help me, philosopher. What would you do? Sure. Well, there are a lot of ways we could, we could approach. One would be, uh, to, to suggest that from what you've just described, Jack, I would say uh, it would be a case of envy. It sounds like you're a bit envious of Rush Limbaugh, yes? His greater notoriety, his greater wealth, and you're saying, well, I would like to be more like him. Is that right? Well, I'm not sure I'd like to be more like him, but I'd certainly like his fame. At We're least not talking in this politics. Scenario. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. No, no, no politics or, here. Or, or, or oxycontin <laughs> addictions. But other We're than not, that, no, 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 no. We're not talking about politics or personal lifestyles, right. but you as one radio broadcaster are willing to acknowledge that some other radio broadcasters may have achieved more celebrity. Absolutely. And Americans, let's face it, are, are, are intoxicated by the prospects of power and wealth and celebrity. Absolutely. In fact, Americans love to create demigods and then rip them apart. You know, Tiger Woods, uh, Michael Vick, even Muhammad Ali, going back to some of the sports figures 
years we've destroyed or tried to destroy. Americans love this. It's a blood sport in this country. Let's make someone hugely famous and then let's destroy him. Rush Limbaugh seems to have weathered this pretty well, by the way. Uh, and I hope you do, too, when your turn comes. <laughs> Thank you. So, yes, okay. let's, let's say, let's say, okay, yes, but it's envy. I am envy. It's I'm envy. So, okay, now that, that could be definitely something we can address philosophically. If we look at Buddhist theory, and I'm looking at Buddhism not as a religion, but as a set of operating principles to lead a very uh, good and fulfilled life. It's a kind of philosophy of life. Philosophy in the ancient world, you know, is a guide to the art of living. And there are many ancient philosophies, East and West, which can give us useful tips and practices for living a better life. So envy in Buddhist theory is regarded as a toxin. It's actually a mental toxin. It's a poison in one's own mind. And it has to be rooted out in one's own mind. So if you're suffering from this, you know, hypothetical envy of Rush Limbaugh, this is clearly not Rush Limbaugh's fault. He didn't, he didn't do all he did just to, just to say, Jack, look, look, you know, look what I'm a better man than you. This is not Rush Limbaugh's doing. This is your doing. And so the first step toward purging yourself, Jack, of this envy is to own it is to recognize that it comes from your own desires and cravings, which are, in fact, upsetting you needlessly. And then we can work on ways of getting rid of them. So part of what you're calling for is, at least in this case, an acknowledgement of individual responsibility, an acknowledgement that I am the agent, the, 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 the moral, responsible person, and that if I am engaging in these thoughts, then perhaps I can change these thoughts. Yes, in some cases. I mean, I'm not universalizing this, and it's not always the case uh, that someone is totally responsible for what's happening to them. But if we're looking at this Buddhist theory for a moment, then it does suggest that we co-create our realities with our thought forms. So there's, a, there's an admixture here of your worldview and your thoughts and your desires, which do in some way get broadcast out to the world, in your case, very literally broadcast. But everybody should realize that they're walking around as transmitters and broadcasters of their own stuff. And so the world responds to that inevitably. So suppose I come back and I say, okay, look, but I understand that this is part of who I am. But if I were in traditional therapy, we'd talk about my parents. We'd talk about the history of the messages about envy that I received. Maybe my parents always looked at the neighbors and thought they had more and passed that on to me or something like that. Do you do that in philosophical counseling as well? Rarely. Rarely. And this is one way, uh, importantly, of distinguishing what we do from what a lot of psychologists do. Of course, there are hundreds of schools of psychology, and I, I would not presume to reduce them all to, you know, to one, to one sentence. But very often it's the case that uh, psychotherapists look in the past, and this is the Freudian causal model. You know, Freud's idea was that thoughts are not free, that in fact one thought gives rise in a deterministic way to another thought, and we're really slaves to our own mental processes. So it's only by very careful elucidation of the past, says, you know, the theory, that we can understand the present. Now that's one way of assessing the human being. Uh, philosophical counseling tends to be much more focused in the present and going forward into the future with a very different assumption, namely that you are free if we help you to create space to celebrate that freedom, to think in constructive ways, then your life will begin to be more constructive immediately. And one of the things we're going to talk about later on in the show is, is, is just how free we are. But in your writing, you point out that what you're engaged in is dialogue, not diagnosis. And you talk about dialogue as being an essential human trait. What do you mean by dialogue and why is it so important to the human being? Well, I think you know perfectly well as a philosopher that the history of our own discipline has very largely been ensconced in dialogue. The canonical stuff that we read and that we teach uh, uh, is basically dialogical, and it's not only in our tradition. You can look at Plato's dialogues, which are absolutely emblematic, are they not, of what philosophers do and think about? And they're still taught today. I still teach them, and gladly, they're beautiful. Uh, one can also look at the great philosophers of the early modern and Enlightenment times uh, who also produced dialogues, partly acknowledging you know, Plato's greatness, but also understanding that dialogue works in a way that monologue doesn't. And I could you know, quote you chapter and verse sources like the Bhagavad Gita and the Analects of Confucius and the Lotus Sutra. All of these involve dialogues. What is it about dialogue? It's very special and empowering. It's a kind of dance, and when two people are doing it to a, a, to a good rhythm, then it really does reveal much more than one person could ever understand just talking to himself in the mirror. 
what I, I, I want to pursue this a little bit because certainly uh, therapy of any form is dialogical, even group therapy. You'll have many, many, many voices. Is it enough to split yourself into two and, and, and to have a conversation with yourself? What does the presence of a philosopher bring into the dialogue that someone else might not bring in? Well, for one thing, we're usually a lot more reactive to what people are saying to us, and we respond uh, much more th often than, than certain schools of psychology, for example. Classical psychoanalysis, of course, is, is almost totally silent, yes? The, the patient is talking on the couch, and the analyst is even hidden from view and behind, just listening and eliciting you know, certain kinds of memories and responses. But our dialogues are much more active and indeed proactive. And we like to probe, to reveal, to discover, to get closer to whatever truths may be motivating the person to be a certain way. And dialogue has this tremendous power. And it also is a healing modality. You know, everyone who uses it, whether it's for psychotherapy, whether it's group therapies you mentioned, or also Socratic dialogue, which is a formal process. We also work with groups in this way. It has some tremendous healing power. And, you know, no one, to my knowledge, can fully explain why. The beauty is we don't need to know why in order to make it work. What about the philosophers that some people deem as dangerous or pernicious, right? There are people who think that if you study Marx, you're going to end up being a, a communist or studying Ayn Rand and you become a radical libertarian or Nietzsche and you become a nihilist. What do you do when you yourself or when the society finds a philosopher harmful to a patient? Well, this is a great question. Just as, I suppose, analogously, yes, we could say, you know, some medications can have harmful side effects, right? Uh, and, and some medical procedures could have potentially dangerous consequences as well. Uh, similarly, I think that ideas have tremendous power. And if one gets hold of the right idea at the right time, it can do a lot of good. And I suppose if one gets hold of the wrong idea at the wrong time, it could conceivably do some harm. So I personally have my favorite philosophers, as everyone else does, but I'm not trying to foist my particular views on a client. I want to listen to that client and understand what kind of philosopher, if you like, is inhabiting that client. I think everyone or almost everyone has a kind of inner philosopher. And our job is very often to awaken that inner philosopher. And this is a platonic thing. You recognize this idea from Plato. Yes, people are walking around pregnant with wisdom. And in Plato's model, which he got from Socrates, the philosopher is a midwife. We don't give our clients virtue. We don't give our clients wisdom. What we do, if we're doing it right, is we are able to act as midwives to the birth of their own innate wisdom. And that's a very beautiful thing. And you know, in a symphony orchestra, there's room for a lot of different voices, and that's what makes an orchestra wonderful. Similarly, I think in this world of ideas, there's room for a lot of different viewpoints. And so we also need to harmonize those in contemporary America. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the concept of health and what it means to be psychological healthy and also revisit this question of what we are free or not free to do and to think. You're listening to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll be right back with Lou Marinoff talking about philosophical counseling after this. You're listening to Prairie Public, a news information and music service in partnership with the University of North Dakota and North Dakota State University. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking to Lou Marinoff about Plato, not Prozac. 
quite a few years ago, I was teaching somewhere else. I was very close to a student who was going through a lot of personal stuff. And over the years that I knew her, she shared some personal things, asked me some advice, et cetera, et cetera. And she began to do poorly in her schoolwork. And so we talked about a whole bunch of different things. And in the midst of many, many, many other things, I suggested to her that perhaps she ought to talk to someone professionally about the legacy of her family. Well, shortly afterwards, and actually not to my surprise, I received an email from her mother who expressed anger and dislike and, and, and said, amongst other things, that I was not doing therapy, that I was not a therapist, but that I was a philosophy professor, and that I had overstepped my bounds and that I had owed her and her daughter an apology. Well, there is a very fine line when you're in your office between philosophical advising and counseling. And when you know students really well, you want to give them the advice of your, if I dare call it, wisdom, certainly your experience. And the students then get to ignore it or listen to it or share it or what have you. Now, this complication about what philosophy is has a long history. Plato thought philosophy was eros, erotic love, not simply that there was an, a sexual attraction. He didn't really think it was necessarily sexual. There was lots of sexuality in his dialogues, but rather that there was something about philosophy that was love, that was, that was seeking and, and, and pursuing knowledge and wisdom the way that a, a lover pursues another lover. And so philosophy has always been intertwined with all of these different issues. And so as a teacher, I am constantly faced with this question, how can I as a philosopher step into this counseling role to be helpful to a population that really looks to me for advice? And it doesn't seem all that surprising that now there is this whole population of counselors who want to say, well, let's look into philosophy and see what philosophy can do to bring its wisdom, its knowledge, its insight into their lives. And so, Lou, this brings me to a very central philosophical question, which is when I'm facing my students, when you're facing your clients, when we're facing ourselves or the people we care about, we want everyone to be healthy. What does it mean to be mentally or psychologically healthy? Well, Jack, you just said a mouthful. and Let me try to formulate some kind of a, of a worthy answer for you. I think you're absolutely right about the erotic aspects. Uh, you know, it was Freud, once again, who sexualized eros. The Greeks understood it as appetitive. Uh, uh, you know, we have appetites for life, appetites for food, appetites for sports, appetites for a lot of things. Healthy people want to get involved with many kinds of different pursuits. That is generally what the Greeks understood as eros, yes? Uh, we are, by the way, and you fingered it here, uh, we are educators. And philosophical counseling as group facilitation that we do with Socratic methods and other methodologies and consulting to organizations, which we also do as part of our modular services, all of these things are very carefully and stringently classified, at least by the American Philosophical Practitioners Association, as educational. We want to distance ourselves from the healthcare model. We are not doctors. We are not licensed psychologists. We're not trained to diagnose, and we're not trying to prescribe drugs or, 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 or prescribe anything at all. But we do believe that in certain kinds of cases, people need to have their minds opened. And so you understand the close connection, as you call it, the fine line. Uh, when a student comes to see you or me in our office, and they're asking about the applicability of some idea that we discussed in class to their own lives, surely they're also doing philosophy. It's not a spectator sport. Philosophy is something that has to be lived. Principles definitely can be applied to life, and at times should be. So we are helping them, but as educators, and that is really our mission. What are we so so are you suggesting then that that as educators we are not seeking health, we're seeking knowledge or wisdom, or is there a health component, as the Greeks thought, to knowledge and wisdom? There is indeed, and, and if you like etymology, then you know in English that the uh, origin of health, it goes back to hail or how in Old English, which means wholeness. So there is something about health 
which has vitally to do with integrity or wholeness of the person. That is to say that a person's parts are aligned and in balance. This also happens to be Plato's recipe for justice, is it not? That all of the parts of the soul are in alignment and therefore the person is at ease with himself or herself, has acquiesced in her circumstances and therefore radiates a kind of justice. And if enough people are like this, if we have a critical mass of people who are so aligned, then society becomes very functional as well. Just the opposite, in fact, of what we're seeing in contemporary America, unfortunately, which is a lot of disalignment, misalignment, and conflict. So health has to do with wholeness, and wholeness has to do with the whole person. The whole person also means understanding what is the nature of our consciousness, what is our purpose in life, how do we live a good life, and these are essentially philosophical questions. So I want to bring up a, a case you talk about in your book, and I want to bring it up with an eye towards my next question, which is going to be about freedom and the ability to choose our philosophical disposition. You talk about Victor, obviously not his real name. You talk about Victor, who is a faculty member at a university. University. He has lots of different art on his wall, and one of them is a painting by Gauguin of uh, at least semi-nude women on a beach, which Gauguin was prone to uh, paint. And a colleague complained that this painting constituted sexual harassment. The chair agreed and asked him to remove the painting and he did because he didn't want to lose his job but he was really angry about this and he came to you I believe not one of your colleagues and so how do you deal with this case what did you say to Victor and how did it help yeah this is a case out of Plato not Prozac and in essence uh, what we discussed was the following thing that uh, Victor ha had been subjected, of course, to a regime of political correctness, which is rampant in, in the U.S., and uh, in which uh, you suddenly become, as an individual, responsible for everybody else's mind state except your own. So you have to be very careful what you say, uh, how you look, what art you put on your wall, you know, and, and, and your likes and dislikes are, are carefully micromanaged by a bureaucracy who has nothing, which has nothing else to do uh, but to make sure that you don't offend anyone. And this comes from a basic philosophical confusion in our culture, which is widespread, rampant. And this is what, what Victor and I worked on, the distinction between offense and harm. And I offered to him John Stuart Mill's essay on liberty because I thought it would resonate with him, and it did. And he was given to understand from, from Mill and Mill's vital distinction that, of course, governments have an obligation to protect citizens from harms that other citizens might do to them. Yes, you have a right to life, a right to, to self-preservation, and a right to self-defense, and governments have an obligation to prevent people from harming you, or indeed, if people do harm you, then the obligation is to bring them to justice, and I hope we all agree about that. But there's a difference between offense and harm, and it's the following. If you are harmed, you are almost certainly harmed against your will. And in most laws, you can't even agree before the fact to be harmed. It's not a valid defense. Oh, this person signed a contract saying I could harm them. That will not, that will not stand up in court. You have a right, you know, not to be harmed. And most people, when they are harmed, unfortunately, it is against their wills. But offense is an entirely different matter, Jack, because if someone offends you, you have in some way been an accomplice to that. You cannot possibly be offended against your will. You have played an active role in allowing yourself to be offended. And this is a power we all have. I call it insensitivity training. I, I actually, you know, help people to understand how to mobilize this power they have, which is not to be offended. It, offense can be offered to you, and if you mobilize your ability to reject it, then you are not in the least upset by other people's condemnations of your tastes. You know, you you when you were defining what uh, one of the characteristics of politically correctness, uh, political correctness, which a phrase I will admit I'm very very uncomfortable with, but we'll pass over that. Um, you you said that. Uh, Political correctness states that you are responsible for everybody else's mind state um, and you say that with uh, with criticism, which of course is understandable to a certain perspective. But, but aren't you suggesting that the solution to Victor was to lack empathy? Was the, the solution for Victor was to say, look, um, you shouldn't care 
that this person was bothered and you shouldn't care so much that there was a judgment about you. You just need to close your mind to the attitudes of other people and, and, and become an island, so to speak. Oh, on the contrary. No, 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 no. On the contrary. Uh, I mean, I didn't tell Victor, look, if you don't like it, quit your job. He, you know, he could have done that for himself and he didn't. He wanted his job and on balance, of course, he should have kept it. But I think that what Victor was doing to be a little more subtle here, to, 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 you know, grasp the nuance of this case, Victor was taking offense at the fact that they had taken offense at his taste in art. I can't help the people who took offense at Victor's taste in art unless they come to see me. But I could certainly help Victor. And because Victor was able to process Mill's distinction between offense and harm, Victor was able to understand that he had not harmed anybody. He had no intention of harming anybody. He had expressed a personal taste in art. If others found that offensive, that was not Victor's fault. The fact that the system condemned him for it is an injustice that exists in the system. So when Victor understood that the system is unjust, he was able to take things less personally take less umbrage at his circumstances, and then we found a very practical way for him to go back to the office and practice what I call social judo. I suggested that he go in with a catalog of his favorite paintings and ask him to pick which ones don't offend them. And then he could put on his wall something he likes and something which, in fact, they you know, pre-approve of. And Victor found this ironically very funny. He immediately, you know, did this, and he left my office laughing. This I would call a cure. Yes, this is a, this is a way of assessing something philosophically, which in fact worked for him, and it alleviated, you know, whatever the crisis was in his establishment. And let me add, if I may that, of course, a psychologist or a psychoanalyst would have approached this totally differently. You could imagine a Freudian having a field day with this guy. Uh, oh, what, what is it about the Tahitian nudes that attract you, right? You could, you, could, you could imagine all kinds of psychotherapy dealing with his, you know, his, his fixations on the breast or whatever you want to talk about. But we're really dealing with the politics because my diagnosis, if I were making one, my assessment of Victor is that he was suffering from injustice, and that is a philosophical problem. So how much freedom does Victor have to change his mind and how much freedom do we all have? The existentialists historically in 20th century philosophy have postulated a tremendous amount of freedom. But more, but other people, communitarians, for example, and others will say, look, we're really bound by our culture. Feminist theorists will talk about the way that, that – what we learn and how we're raised really frame our attitudes. And so what you're suggesting is that we are pretty free, if not completely free, to choose our what you call philosophical disposition. Is that is that fair? Do you really think we are that free or is – is obviously I'm sure it's a little more nuanced than that. But how much freedom do we have to choose our own attitudes? I think we have a tremendous – amount of freedom and more probably than, than some people are willing to exercise. You know, freedom can also be terrifying. People get very used to being imprisoned, uh, both, both literally and figuratively. And sometimes it is the case that if you open the door to the cell uh, or give the person a key to open the door to the cell and release themselves, they'll sit in the cell. Uh, because at least they're accustomed to this kind of captivity. And uh, people will often, you know, not want to be free, precisely because, as Sartre finally pointed out, since you're referencing the existentialists, that freedom entails responsibility. And we have to exercise the two in tandem. I think we have a tremendous amount of freedom in the Stoic sense. That is it, what Epictetus has to say about it, and I use him a lot also with the right kind of client. Uh, the, the basic uh, aphorism is that we are not upset by circumstances, but by the views we form of them. So, uh, you know, our freedom is not such that we can dictate or control everything that goes on in our environments and our lives. There are obviously lots of forces at work, some of them you've already mentioned. Uh, but when things happen in this life, one vital freedom that people can learn to exercise is interpretation. How are we going to respond to a given situation? And we do have freedom there to form judgments which will better serve us as opposed to judgments which will serve us less well. And is this what you mean when you say that, that uh, the philosophical counseling is about coming to terms with the problem itself? Yes, exactly. And there's no one way to do it. And, and I want to, you know, I want to reiterate something really important. And that is, I, I've come to believe I'm doing this now almost 20 years. Uh, and I've come to believe that many people do have an inner philosopher in there, people who have not necessarily been philosophically trained. They're still an inner philosopher. And when people start to come to grips with issues in this way, they often reinvent very significant fragments of one school or another of philosophy in which you and I, Jack, are more, you know, steeped by virtue of our profession. 
professional formations. So it's very interesting to have a client coming in who has managed to, you know, to reinvent some very important facet of existential philosophy or Buddhist philosophy or libertarian philosophy. And then we can help that person to develop in a much more comprehensive way this worldview, which they themselves seem to be articulating. And then they get something they never had before. It's called a philosophical identity. So this, this, I, I, I keep thinking back to my original comments about brain versus mind and, and some of the things that we've talked about already. What about the people who would say that, look, you really are the product of your brain chemistry and if there is, uh, if Victor had an anxiety disorder or if, if someone, uh, you know, was, was schizophrenic, that this, this, this is, when you use the word therapy for the sane, what you're really saying is, look, these aren't real problems. And the real problems are for the, the neurosurgeons and, and neuros, neurotherapists and, 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 and neurologists and, and that neuroscience gets to the core of the machine when it's broken. And what, what, what philosophical therapy is doing is, I don't know, an almost – and I and I'm speaking in someone else's voice here, obviously, but, but, but an almost bourgeois attempt to examine things that aren't that big of a deal. How would you respond to that? Because clearly I would think that you would disagree with that completely. Uh, no, actually, I'm going to fool you. I, I, I don't disagree with it as much as you might think, and I'll tell you why. Uh, we could use the computer analogy here, uh, since that's a little bit more advanced than Descartes. Uh, we could think of, you know, the brain as a piece of hardware, or if you like, wetware. And certainly, what the neuroscientists are doing is they're trying to understand, you know, the hardwiring and and all of the and all of the chemistry and electrochemistry, you know, that makes the brain work as it does. And that's really a hardware problem. But you know, people have operating systems. People have religious beliefs. Uh, what's the difference between, you know, uh, uh, one major religion and another? What's the difference between one philosophy of life and another? These are, these are what I would call software issues. These are operating systems. The human brain is so remarkably evolved or, or created, I don't know which, but it's a remarkable thing. A newborn baby in any language or culture will, will you know, assimilate the language of, of the, uh, and the culture in which he or she uh, is, is immersed, regardless of his origins. So the brain is incredibly adaptive. But if we're looking at culture as software, and if we're looking at philosophical operating systems is very particular kinds of software, those from which we derive our moral principles and, you know, our other kinds of beliefs, then it's critically important that the software component, the software package, be running smoothly and efficiently and also be modified and upgraded as need be. And that's the kind of work we're doing. So as you say in, in, in your writings, there's a lot of people who have to do other uh, psychological stuff or medicinal stuff first and then can do philosophical therapy, but there are people for whom the drugs are absolutely necessary. Absolutely right. And, and we, you know, if you ride the New York subway, and I do, uh, regularly, you'll see, you'll see people, uh, you know, who obviously need, need, uh, who aren't taking their medication and probably need uh, Prozac, not Play-Doh. Uh, it's very clear there are, there are emotionally disturbed people. There are people in the world, not just New York. We just seem to have, you know, a, a, a more than our fair share of them. But there are a lot of people in the world who need medical help. And listen, I'm a big proponent of appropriate medicine. I like modern medicine. I like the fact that modern medicine has, for those with access to it, virtually doubled our life expectancies in the last century. I love the fact that we can get vaccinated, you know, and protected, therefore, against all kinds of dread diseases. And I, I mean, all of that is wonderful, and that comes from a biological reductionist paradigm, and I think it works. And as far as it goes, I love it. But we're also creatures who have values. We're also creatures who need meaning and purpose in life. When Martin Luther King made his famous speech about the content of character, when he wanted his children to be judged about the content of his character, he wasn't talking about a prescription drug they take every month to make sure that the content of their character is what it's supposed to be. He was talking about philosophy. So we, we, we've gotten a couple questions, uh, one from Lena in Colombia and one from Lisa, I believe, from Ontario. And they're both about asking about how generalizable these, these uh, procedures are, these thoughts are. And so, so Lena is asking whether or not there's a way to use advertising and philosophy together as a form, I gather, of group therapy, collective therapy, social therapy, almost trying to change the culture. And then, and then Lisa in Ontario is asking, to what extent could you use these ideas as 
um, coaching, and and I, I imagine this means uh, not only she doesn't mention sp- sports coaching, but she mentions um, executive coaching or or working on the advancement of 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 professional life. And so, to what extent can you take the ideas from philosophical practitioners and extend them to a larger audience? Well, to a very great extent. I think we're actually doing that right now, Jack. Are we not? Even talking about this is getting people thinking about their issues, you know, in a slightly different way and so forth. So just to reiterate, I think that people who have medical problems definitely need to see doctors. People who have, you know, severe emotional disturbances or, or personality disorders which don't allow them to function rationally uh, or, or, or normally uh, definitely need other kinds of help. But there are in life a host of problems that beset us uh, every day. We're going to encounter all kinds of stuff, both of our own making and of others' makings. And in some cases, philosophy is exactly what we need. As far as groups are concerned, I had mentioned to you, and it's in Plato on Prozac as well, that we work with a very powerful modality called Socratic Dialogue. And this is something that was developed out of Plato, but it's really a 20th century thing that came from Germany and spread to Holland and other places. And this allows a group of people who are not trained philosophically to actually have an experience of being philosophers and to answer in very definitive terms based on real life examples and concrete experiences, questions such as what is liberty? What is integrity? What is freedom? What is responsibility? And we can facilitate, uh, we, we, some of us are trained in this method, and we can facilitate groups. It's a wonderful experience. I've done this with philosophy clubs and universities. Uh, I've done it with, uh, you know, with, with, with groups of ordinary citizens who have this kind of interest. In Holland, they do it with civil servants. And it's a wonderful exercise in actually being philosophical and arriving at much deeper understandings of the meanings of some of these terms that are so important to us. So that's partly a, an answer to Lena. Philosophy can be used not only with groups, but also, as I mentioned to you, in organizations. Look, there are CEOs who are very philosophical. A lot of them have on their uh, late-night reading tables Sun Tzu's Art of War, uh, the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, and other kinds of works, which are absolutely philosophical and which guide them in their everyday lives. So that's a kind of an answer or the beginning of an answer to Lena. We have a series of questions about philosophical counseling as a profession and as a its interaction with the professional, philosophical, academic world. And so I want to start off actually with an email that we got from a person who really wanted to remain anonymous. This person is in a PhD program and this person thinks that when he or she is done, that he or she wants to go into philosophical counseling. But is afraid to tell the professors and is is really wondering how to start first how to start a philosophical counseling uh, business but also how to talk about his or her professors so that his or her work won't be dismissed so that they won't be ridiculed and there's clearly fear there that not following the traditional academic route is going to be dangerous. Is this common? Yes. And uh, we see this all. This is like a case for me, okay? We have seen many such cases and on all continents. Uh, let me just now explain, you know, why, and I will also offer some very specific advice to this person. In fact, I'll offer the advice off the top. Uh, doing a PhD is, in my view, about 90% political. Uh, You have to obviously have a lot of expertise to get to the stage where, you know, your proposal is accepted and you're writing up the thesis and and eventually in this country you're going to have, you know, examiners and so forth and the defense scheduled. But it's politics, as you well know, and it's very important to play the politics if you want to actually succeed. Uh, I did my PhD in England, by the way, and I didn't play the politics. And in the end, I had to do two doctoral theses, one that satisfied me and the other one that satisfied my examiner. So it was a it was a win-win situation, and I got two for the price of one, but I don't recommend it. I, I think that in the first instance, this person should keep a very low profile about his or her interest in philosophical counseling, depending on her department or his department. Uh, some departments are much more open. I must also interject, we 
We have chairs of philosophy in this country now, not just me. We have increasing membership from senior academics in the APPA who've been through our certification program and who are practicing on campus. And some of them have, in fact, had IRB approved research protocols, so they're actually seeing clients on a pro bono basis as part of their university research. Just so let, let me just interrupt for our, our listeners. IRB is the inter, uh, Internal Review Boards, and they're the people that oversee research that involves animal or human beings so that people aren't harmed. Yes, and this is institutional review boards. This is a federal mandate, and its job is to protect. There's a committee of people who have to assess and approve all proposed research, as you say. And the idea is really twofold. The first is to prevent harm, back to Mill, to prevent harm from coming to those who are being, you know, the subjects of research, but also to protect the researchers in case of lawsuits. We do live in an exquisitely litigious culture here, and so everybody needs protection. And the IRB does this. It protects people. So it's possible. I did it. I pioneered this at City College a few years back and, and run a very successful research protocol. I got some really interesting clients that way. I, you know, I had three a week. I was allowed to have three a week on the research. I got some great case studies out of it. They were helped by the counseling and other philosophers have taken this bit and run with it and done the same thing. Uh, Kate Mahuron did it at Eastern Michigan University. Uh, she, she's a chair of her department there and managing editor of our journal. Kate Russell, Kathy Russell, and, uh, and Andrew Fitzgibbon did it at SUNY Cortland, and they had some great clients as well. So so this is something that is doable, but you have to see where you are. And there are some departments, as you know, which are still very much under the aegis of the of the dominant paradigm, which remains, you know, analytic. The Anglo-American schools are mostly analytic philosophy. And they're quite hostile, some of them, to any application. They're, some of them are still not even accepting of applied ethics, which for heaven's sake has been a growth industry for 30 years. And no one can dispute the value of applied ethicists in biomedical spheres, environmental spheres, you know, so many, so many engineering ethics. There's so much value that they add to the process and to the education of these professionals. And we're just basically, you know, building on that in some ways. So I would say to this person, and we had a case like this in Spain too, where the, where the person was a PhD candidate in a very conservative, you know, politically conservative department. And I said to him, look, just keep a low profile, do your work, get your PhD, Come to an APPA certification program. We run these things every year, uh, and you can get a three-day, uh, uh, basically a certificate from us. What we do is we give you the tools to go out and build a practice. And when you're ready, then you can come out of the closet and declare yourself to be a philosophical counselor. Get your PhD first. That's more important. And then you can practice. And I must, I must say, Jack, that in fairness, you know, in the universities, you could study just about anything along one of two axes. You could do pure or applied work, yes? You could study, for example, literary theory, or you could study creative writing. You could do pure mathematics or applied mathematics. You could do famously theoretical science or experimental science. Well, why in heaven's name would philosophy be exempt? Why should philosophy be something that's 100% theoretical and 0% practical, especially since it's the foundation of the whole academy as we know it. You know, this is this is an aside, but it's always surprising to people that philosophers who spend all their time demanding that other people are open-minded, uh, that other people be open-minded, that philosophers are so close-minded, that there's so much politics and there's so much hostility towards the non-dominant school or the new thing or someone else's work. But philosophy is as, as you say, political and as rigid as anyone else, as any other field. Indeed. And some of the philosophers that these philosophers love to study, I mean, could be albeit Spinoza, albeit Nietzsche, albeit Hobbes. These guys led very unenviable lives, by the way. They were mavericks in their own way, in their own time. They also were people who broke with the regnant traditions, and they paid terrible political and professional prices for doing so. Uh, nonetheless, they produced some brilliant philosophy. So, so, you know, Schopenhauer himself was very critical of those who are simply, as he called them, book philosophers, those who were able to parse ideas very well, but who have no purchase on life. And I think this is a really important thing. Philosophy was never meant in the ancient world to be a purely theoretical endeavor. It was always also intended to be a guide to the art of living. We're not, we're not doing anything new. We're simply providing new bottles for old wine. In a couple articles that I wrote, I, re I refer to the practice of philosophers spouting Socrates's uh, Socratic ignorance as I know that I know nothing, but really believing they're right and everyone else is wrong. I, I call that Socratesing because it's it's <laughs> it's so it's just it's it's so blatantly obvious that they themselves are not practicing what they claim everyone else should practice. Is this sure. is this 
is this a case for philosophical counseling? Is, is, is there something that you could do for these people to help them see that they're leading inauthentic lives or are there – are there problems that you can't think your way out of? And uh, yes, there. You know that's such a brilliant and interesting question. We could, we could. This could be the basis of a whole other show. You know, I think some philosophers are very good candidates for philosophical counseling themselves, particularly those who have, who have lost their way and who, you know, who confuse themselves with monks or think they've taken, you know, vows of irrelevancy, or as the case may be. We did a hire a couple of years ago uh, where we advertised for an open position. We just wanted, you know, an interesting philosopher in any any field. We got over. 600 applications, Jack. And so the pragmatist in me, and we didn't talk about this, but I'm very pragmatic, you know, it, it was, it was in, it, tragic to see so many dozens, if not hundreds, of brilliant young philosophers and being o only able to hire one of them. And it seemed to me, you know, that to make our case perfectly, why is it in this country that some of the finest young minds who, who are attracted to a very difficult and challenging regimen of study, you know, to get an MA or a PhD in philosophy is not easy. Why is it that our culture has so little use for them? It's partly because the culture itself is too psychologized, too over-medicated, and, and, and too, too materialistic. It's also partly because, let's face it, the analytical philosophers, for all of their theoretical brilliance, have succeeded in making themselves quite irrelevant and also quite unemployable and inaccessible. And you know what? They're paying a price. In Britain now, there are philosophy departments are getting closed down by the government because no one can possibly understand anymore what they're doing or what their utility is to society. And that's a great tragedy. I'm going to put a plug right now for the uh, Y magazine, which you can get online uh, via our website, yradioshow.org, on Second Thought. It's a special issue. And in in the magazine, the, the lead article I wrote called Flossy and it's public and it's exactly about this this problem and it's it's for non-specialists. But let's let's go back now that the advertisement is done. Let's go back and 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 someone else wrote who didn't didn't provide name uh, and asked what is the most? Uh, what is the biggest challenge preventing philosophical counseling from becoming a mainstream uh, profession? Oh, uh, the, the, you know, the, it's, there is no there is no difficulty at all. The obstacles are very natural ones. And let's let's take you know the other side now. Let's be the devil's advocate for a moment and realize that any time a new idea, be it in science or, or in arts or in politics, you know, any time some new idea or new movement looks like it's going to get launched, it always goes through a very severe process of criticism and winnowing. It's a kind of cultural evolutionary process. I call it synthetic selection. It's the cultural analog, if you like, of Darwin's natural selection. We are very resistant to change, and sometimes for a very good reason, yes? Uh, changes can be can be devastating if they happen too too much and too quickly. So there's this tendency to put on the brakes when something new happens, and let's have a look at it. Let's have a closer look at it. Let's scrutinize it. Let's make sure it's okay. This is why, after all, you know, drugs are tested and not simply marketed and so forth. So I think, by the same token, when new movements happen, you know, within the academy, they are often regarded with suspicion, and sometimes when there are too many ego problems uh, by, you know, with hostility. Uh, but th this is a very natural thing, and I must tell you that my colleagues and I at City College are now in the process of establishing a graduate program in, in applied philosophy, which has a branch in philosophical practice. It is only at the level of departmental approval, but that is a huge hurdle, and our department is squarely behind it. So now we have to go through, you know, a bureaucratic process of approval all the way up to the state and the Board of Regents eventually in New York. But I'm spearheading this, and I'm absolutely determined to found a program in philosophical practice that will allow people such as this PhD student uh, to come and do a master's degree with us in the thing that he or she really wants to do. And I'm convinced that if this succeeds, once the first one gets off the ground, it will get cloned all over the country. And we're going to start seeing philosophers in everyday life as we've never seen them. So I'm very optimistic about the possibilities, and I welcome constructive criticism, such as we've had from some very uh, brilliant psychiatrists, Irvin Yalom, uh, for example, and Ronald Pies. The, these guys have, have given us real great criticisms in the past, which we've been able to answer and grow from, and we end up collaborating with them. So I'm waxing very optimistic about the future of philosophical counseling in this country. And how many philosophical practitioners are there, an estimate in the United States, around the world? Are they consolidated in one particular region or one particular language or culture? Or how, When we think about philosophical counseling, how much of, their, how much of it is going on right now? 
there's a huge movement, well, I mean, huge for, put this in context, okay? You know that when psychologists or psychiatrists have a national conference, when one of the APAs meets, they need San Francisco. They need a place with, with 200 hotels because there's 50 or 60,000 of them descending on the city. You know, our APA, the American Philosophical Association, you know, still can put 3,000 philosophers in a ballroom, uh, and that's a big gathering of philosophers. But on the other side of this, the uh, philosophical practice movement in the last 15 or 20 years has really taken root worldwide. So uh, Plato, not Prozac, for example, is in 30 languages now and bestseller in many, many countries. And this drives a demand on the part of clients to look for philosophers. Then what happens is academic philosophers or graduate students answer the call. They say, hey, I want to do this too. How can I do this? And they start doing it. So at the moment, there are my, my guesstimate is about a thousand uh, philosophical practitioners in the world. And approximately 300 have been certified in the United States by the American Philosophical Practitioners Association. We have probably another 300 or so practicing who are not particularly certified. They're independents. So in the U.S., there are probably five or 600 philosophers right now. And, and that's a very big number for our discipline. Yes, that's not a huge number uh, for, for, you know, for the mental health industry or for the coaching industry, but it is very significant philosophically. And I may add that in some countries, they have really been well endorsed by the powers that be. The Korean group, which just started a few years ago in, in South Korea, has now been given a 10-year research contract by the Ministry of Defense to counsel troops on the front lines. This is a huge breakthrough for them. I mentioned our work in Sweden, and there are, there are similar tales that could be told about the, pro the progress into the culture of philosophical counseling around the world. It's, it's commonplace amongst academics, amongst many people that has appeared on this show quite a few times, the criticism that America in particular is anti-intellectual. Do you think that this affects the possibility of philosophical counseling? I mean, you could you could disagree with the premise, of course, that that America is an anti-intellectual, and that itself is a huge conversation. But is is the resistance or the perceived resistance to the academy to uh, the intellectual life is that a hindrance to philosophical counseling? It it prima facie it might be. Let me just say that's a that's a really very interesting and important question. And, I, and as a, as a Canadian, I'm a dual citizen. I'm originally from Canada. Now I'm you know many years I've been uh, in the U.S. living here, working here, and I'm naturalized and very proud to be an American as well. So I guess that allows me to criticize America more cogently as an American. Speaking as an American, I would say yeah, we're anti-intellectual. I think Canadians and Brits already know this, but uh, many Americans don't, and we have it in our history. It's 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 quite plain as a kind of trend. But it's not the only thing that makes us who we are. I think that paradoxically, perhaps, or ironically, the anti-intellectualism in America is a good thing for us, because right now, the extent to which you know, mental health has been colonized by the insurance companies and big pharma. Really, they've colonized the, the medical industry and the psychological industry, and they're making people sick, not well. Do you know that the U.S. Army recently conducted a study that discovered 75% of our youth are unfit for military service owing to physical and or psychological disabilities? 75%. So what, excuse me, is the mental health industry our culture of overconsumption, of, of, of junk food, of trash TV, of thoughtlessness? Is this making people better or is it making them worse? And I would suggest that, unfortunately, it's making people a lot worse. And so eventually they will seek a remedy. And one of the remedies for all of this is leading the examined life. So I really do believe that the tendency in the U.S. now of the, you know, the cultural disintegration that we're, that we're witnessing, ADHD, epidemic proportions, and they're only treating it symptomatically, Jack. They're not addressing the root problems, many of which are indeed a failure to exercise our intellectual and other kinds of character capabilities. In, in 15 seconds left, do you have one last message from the philosophical practitioner movement to our audience that, that you want us to get, to understand, to think about? Yes, and, and I'll just re rephrase what Socrates said, that the unexamined life is not worth leading. And he framed that in the negative, so let me frame it in the positive, that now there are lots of people out there, lots of really interesting and well-trained philosophers who can help you to lead a more examined life, and that will really be more fulfilling for you. Well, Lou Marinoff, thank you so much for joining Why an exciting conversation about something that, that, that gets very little attention and that I think in the future will get much more. Lou, thank well, you thank for joining us.
You're, you're very welcome, Jack. It's been a real pleasure. I can't believe how swiftly this hour has passed. It always does. You've been listening to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We'll be back with a wrap-up right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're listening to Prairie Public, a news information and music service in partnership with the University of North Dakota and North Dakota State University. You're listening to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We've been talking about philosophical counseling with Lou Marinoff, asking when do we choose Plato and when do we chose, choose Prozac? And the intriguing answer is sometimes we choose both. As always, when we have these conversations, we are faced with these lists of ideas that we thought were simple but end up being tremendously complicated at minimum. The question of health is on the table. What does it mean to be healthy? Particularly, what does it mean to be psychologically or mentally healthy? What does it mean to have a sense of who you are and how you fit into the world? Surely, there are chemical issues here, but also are issues of judgment and wisdom, issues of context and understanding how you're supposed to look at things and feel about things and when you can change your mind. So much about our lives, so much of our Trouble. So much of our decision making is really about to what extent can, that we can change our minds and when is the appropriate time to do so. And so at the heart of this also is the question about human freedom. Are we free to choose to have a different attitude? The great philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre thought we were very free to choose anything. He famously said that he was never more free than he was in prison because he could value what he wanted to value, how he wanted to value it. And so part of what philosophical counseling suggests is that we have in our power the ability to change our philosophical disposition, change our attitude about things that maybe we've just been stubborn about. And this involves, of course, wisdom. One of the things that I kept thinking over and over again during this conversation is that talking to a philosopher is more necessary now because we don't have the village elder to discuss things with. We don't have the culture where our grandparents are usually are generally living in our house with us. We are spread out across the country, across the world. And when you don't have access to someone with that life experience, someone who understands you, someone who understands the culture, someone who has been through it, you need to find another vehicle for wisdom, another vehicle for rethinking, another vehicle for getting people to see that it isn't always the way that things appear to them. My wife and I have a phrase that we, we use to each other when, when, we're trying, when we're stuck in these holes and, and we always say, it's not always about you. You get wrapped up in what you think people are thinking and most of the time people aren't thinking about you at all. The other really interesting thing about this conversation is how continuous philosophy is, how much it stretches out, not just into therapy, but into the professional world, into the the the, the, the executive's nightstand, as, as Lou suggested. And so once again, we are faced with the notion that philosophy is much larger than we always think it is, and we are reminded of its power both in our personal life and in our political life. You've been listening to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. Thank you for joining us. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, the North Dakota Humanities Council, and the University of North Dakota College of Arts and Sciences. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. Why's music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Lua e Sol. For more of his music, visit jazzflutweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we have inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower.